Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chitheads. My guest today is Donyadara Swami, a Vaishnavite monk in the Bhakti tradition. Donyadara Swami splits his time each year between New York City, living at the Bhakti Center in the East Village, and India. I was lucky enough to get a chance to sit down with him right before he left for India this September. We had a very interesting discussion about the philosophy behind his spiritual worldview, diving into discussions of mantra and kirtan, and the differences between a personal and impersonal notion of Godhead, among other interesting topics. Also, Donyadara Swami tells the fascinating story of his, get this, kidnapping a kidnapping that was plotted by his parents, of all people. So I hope you enjoy this interesting interview. Here you go, friends. Don Yardara Swami. Maharaj, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So I was thinking before we sat down to do this interview about when I had first heard you speak. And it really was only about a year ago I had come with Jimmy, my partner Jimmy, and a friend of mine who was visiting to the Lotus Festival. And for those who aren't familiar, the Lotus Festival is this, you know, wonderful uh, festival where there are speakers and lots of kirtan. And I was really excited, actually, to introduce my friend Tyler. He was visiting from Amsterdam at the time to this kind of context because he hadn't ever experienced kirtan before. And he was a little maybe shell-shocked. I, don't, I, I, I was anticipating he would be, I mean, he was open-minded, but it was definitely a, a little bit of a shock for him. And I remember we sat down at the, end of, uh, at the end of the experience. We went out and had dinner, and I sort of asked him, you know, how, how he enjoyed the experience. And his experience of the kirtan was interesting. He found the repetition and 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 the the kind of forever, almost eternal nature of the the singing to be a little off putting. And he and he thought, you know, he asked a question. You know, are they just are they just trying to brainwash themselves? And of course, I I. I giggled a little bit, and Jimmy and I tried to kind of explain the the philosophy behind kirtan. But I remember that term brainwashing kind of stuck with me a little bit because there is a sense in which what you're doing in kirtan as a form of meditation is is washing the brain. You know, you're looking to kind of clear the brain of of the cobwebs that would obstruct, you know, uh, a right view or 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 something like that. So I'm wondering if you could maybe start with just a little explanation, a philosophical explanation uh, that would that would would be helpful for someone like my friend who's new to Kirtan, who's coming into this context. It's a very alien experience. So what is actually happening when we're engaging in uh, yeah. devotional chanting well, like Kirtan? First, you know, everyone's seeking happiness. And your happiness is dependent on the mind. Mm-hmm. So in yoga, there's a term called klishta vritti, troubling thoughts. Mm. You know, we ha- and troubling thoughts are, you know, selfish thoughts. Right. You know, violence and greed and, and, and so many things. So in Eastern tradition, there are spiritual practices to clean the mind right. uh, of uh, uh, spiritual practices and very profound techniques to clean the mind of thoughts that are um, uh, morphing the mind into lower forms of, of perception mm-hmm. and contentment. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So in terms of, of, of kirtan, um, you know, one form and prominent form of spiritual practice is, is meditation. <clears throat> and it, it's a very, very simple, you know, kind of uh, conception. I would just say an easy way to explain it is that the, the mind is like a, a, a mirror, mm-hmm. you know, or a lens, you know. And if the lens is distorted, your perception is distorted. Right. And there's a basic concept, I think even in modern psychology, what to speak of spirituality, that most problems are not what is there, but your perverted way or uh, limited way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everyone is trying to, you know, purify the mind. When the Dalai Lama was offered a penthouse in, in, in Switzerland... And, you know, he had a beautiful view, and his disciples said, well, what do you think of the view? You know, and he gave kind of a spiritual answer, you know. If I was depressed, I would think it is a place to jump out. Mm. You know, so everything's based on the mind. Right. So yoga, which is basically meditation, which deals with purifying the mind, is to bring the mind to a higher level of perception and contentment. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which it's done is meditation, because what distorts the mind are vrittis or self, basically thoughts born of the false conception of life, that I am selfish, I am the center, I am the enjoyer, I am the controller. You know, you go, me, 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 me. And, and, and it's not only distorting the mind, but it's creating like a static. You know, when I was young, and I grew up in Brooklyn... You know, we had one little television. You had antennas on the top. And when we wanted to watch our favorite show on Saturday morning, Crusader Rabbit or Andy's Gang, <laughs> you, know, you know, you had to play with the antennas because mm-hmm. it was static. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's, there's this concept that perception, you know, you're, you're, that if you actually see what's there, there's no problem. Even, even the concept of death. Yeah. Death is the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is suffering? Suffering is when the world moves against your desires. Death is when, you know, you lose everything. Right. Death itself is an illusion. It's the illusion of non-existence. Mm-hmm. So it's due to your perception that you think that you're temporary. You think that you'll become non-existent. So what meditation is, and I, I think I'll try to make this quick because I could say so much on it. It's a strategy. Yoga is the six systems of Indian philosophy. The, the, the school of psychology or mental discipline is called yoga. And, and meditation means it's a strategy. There's so many fluctuations of the mind. You pick one and you learn to focus on it. It quells the other. Even now, if you just meditate on your breath or take a few deep breaths, your mind will be calm. Mm. You know, it might, the mind is, is, is malleable, and therefore you can mold it the way you want. So if you focus on one thing, then it will quell the other disturbing thoughts, and your mind will morph into a higher level of perception and contentment. Ultimately, to bring it to sattva, and sattva means realityness. Truth, the truth of a mirror 
is that it's not distorted and clean. The truth of the mind is that it's not distorted or, 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 or it's not distorted or, you know, dirty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now the recommendation, you can do any object to steady the mind. I think the Yoga Sutras clearly recommends mantra. The history of meditators through India is meditating on mantra. Mm. And what mantra basically means, according to the Yoga Sutras, very simply, is God in sound. Mm. There's two terms. There's vachya and vachaka. Vachya means the object. Vachaka means the expression of it. Right. The Yoga Sutras clearly say that in terms of mantra, there's no difference between the vachya and the vachaka, the object and the expression of it. Mm. And it's a theistic conception that there is a divine absolute reality controlling things who determines how things are. He's made the object of metal such that it can become fire. Mm. You put metal in fire, it becomes heat and light. Fire is heat and light. And he's made certain sounds that just as the iron can become heat and light, that can become God-ized, you know, Ishvara-ized. Mm-hmm. And this is called mantra. Mm. And the advantage of meditating on mantra is that because it's God and sound, we have a sambanda or relationship with it. And therefore, we can, rather than just focus on it out of will, there's an element of relationship or attraction to it. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic bhakti process. You meditate on mantra. It facilitates your meditation. And because it's not just a prop, it can reciprocate or respond. And that's why bhakti is called the path of grace, Mm. that your object of meditation can respond to it. And then in terms of the bhakti tradition, it even goes further. If you accompany your meditation with proper music, Mm -hmm. which is called rag or melody and tal and rhythm. Rag and tal are connected to very deep parts of the psyche that invoke emotion. (laughs) Mm. So if you put the mantra in rag and tal, it'll increase the love or devotion for God or the object of meditation and therefore increase your absorption. And the efficacy of a yogic practice is the degree that it facilitates your absorption. Mm -hmm. And then if you put it in a group, you see shared bliss is higher than individual bliss. This is a theory of rasa or love. Right. So you put it in a group, it will even facilitate that that emotion Mm -hmm. and attraction even more. So basically that's what's happening in kirtan. It is meditation, and it's a meditation that allows a common person in a city who is not disciplined, not self-controlled, to achieve a very high level of meditation. Because when mantras put in music, even if your mind wanders, it goes to the object of your meditation. Right. Anyway, this is just a basic foundational understanding well for being basic it's a very rich and wonderful (laughs) explanation thank you so much for that 
so now, yeah, so I was touched by something that you said, um, and I think it's always interesting to kind of tease out this word purification because, and what, and many things that you said, um, tease it out in the way that I, that I, that I like in that, uh, oftentimes purification for a lot of people who were raised in kind of this, you know, Judeo-Christian environment, even if they weren't necessarily raised in that kind of a household, that yeah. the resonance of purification it sounds sort of puritanical and and yeah. but what you're saying is not so much that you're purifying because you're sinning and if you don't purify you're going to hell as you know as as other traditions would perhaps say but it, that it's really it's purifying the mind of static so that the perception is clearer of the truth correct very well said yeah yeah so, I love that. Um, uh, so now i want to shift gears pure pure, pure also means the original thing if you have water, it's the source. When water is pure, it's just water without anything added. Right. So there's a conception, and this is also in yoga, that our original state is pure, eternal, mm-hmm. and happy. Yeah. So pure means to to bring yourself to the original thing, right. which is your pure consciousness, which in the bhakti tradition is love or devotion. That's great. Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about your story because you have a very interesting life story. And I would just love for you to start at the beginning, you know, when the seed of spirituality was planted in your life, and then just take us on that journey. Okay. Um, You know, in spiritual tradition, there's reincarnation since time immemorial. Brahmanda Brahmate Konya Bhagavan Jeev Guru Krishna Pasadi Pai Bhakti. We're wandering from universe to universe, from species of life to species of life, until by the mercy of Krishna, the mercy of God, Krishna, mm-hmm. there's one God, there's many names for God. It's different languages have different names referring to the same object. And by the mercy of Krishna and the representative, you get the bhakti lata beach, the seed of devotion. Mm. So I think the way this works, at least in my own understanding, is that there, just as there's different senses to experience things, there's a sense of taste, the eyes, visual, the ears, you know, audible. There's some kind of sense in the mind called faith. And that sense allows you to experience God. Now, I know the problem with English words is they're pregnant with history. So if you say God, it refers to so many things, to so many people, but I'll use that term, Mm -hmm. you know. I really liked that you touched on that because I think it's important to touch on that, uh, that God does not need to be monopolized by a particular tradition's idea of God. And, you know, in the U.S., I I feel like we see that a lot. We see that, you know, God is a Judeo-Christian God, and and so people have a hard time remaining flexible to alternative notions that could perhaps be more expansive. Yeah. Eastern thought, at least in my tradition, the bhakti tradition, Krishna bhakti tradition, is religion is called dharma. It's not a particular faith. It's the nature of the soul to love God. Mm. And therefore, I don't look at a person in a different religion. If they, you know, they are theistic, Mm -hmm. you know, as a different religion. It's the same. It's the nature of the soul. It's beyond any faith. But getting back to our, our, our question, yeah. oh, how, my journey. Yeah, your journey. So, you know, I was in the university my second year. 
That's 1970. Where was this? State University of New York at Binghamton. Nice. Um, I studied philosophy. I was a sportsman. What kind of sports? I was um, a soccer player, captain of my college team, captain of my high school team. Nice. Went on and coached in high school for a year, and then I became a monk. But So this was in 1970, and, you know, I don't have to tell you the history of what that was. So me and my friends went to the West Coast during the summer, and somehow I met people of the Krishna Bhakti tradition, and they had a religious experience. Hmm. And what a religious experience is, what faith is, it's not kind of you know, um, theoretical, I believe or I don't believe. And so what faith is, and my, my, my teacher, known as Srila Prabhupada, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada, he taught that um, what faith means is unflinching faith in something sublime. Mm-hmm. So you can have faith, people have faith in uh, social networking. It's a misplaced faith, but they think that this is sublimity and then they're disappointed. Yeah. yeah. People have faith in sex life. Right. People have faith in, in political position, you know. So what happened is, is I, I, my, I had an experience of overwhelming sublimity in relationship to a particular tradition, in relationship to connection with the divine. And that experience of sublimity um, so far past anything of sensual faith or egotistical faith that that became my trust of what direction I should go. Mm-hmm. And somehow that entered into my heart very strongly. I don't know why or how, but somehow it seems that the universe and my journey set me up at a particular time in history and a particular time of consciousness to have that sense of faith open. And then that sense of faith to keep it open has to be nourished by a teachings that um, makes it reasonable and makes it relevant in terms of its understanding of the world and how to function in that. Mm. So that I became connected to a guru and a teacher, and I nourish that faith. Mm. And then the journey is basically, in Sanskrit it says, a Tao Shraddha, it begins with a, it begins with an appreciation, right? Some people will look at me in, in robes and a shaved head and a little tuft of hair on the back and say, this guy's weird. You know, another person will meet them and say, hey, this is okay. So it's a kind of faith. Yeah, it's okay. Mm. Then a Tao Shraddha Sadhu Sangha. If you have an appreciation and that appreciation increases, and what is this? This is love of God, mm-hmm. that this is sublime through the chanting of mantras. You know, we, you know our is the Maha Mantra, the Hare Krishna Mantra. And, you know, if it increases, then you'll say, I like to be with those people. Mm-hmm. In anything you do. Yeah. And then after that, Adao Shatha Tata Sadhu Sangha Bhajana Kriya. I think it's so good that I'd like to adopt the practices to attain it. Mm. And then after that, Anartha Navriti. It's so good 
that I'm going to start giving up things that have no value to it. Mm. You know, I might stop going to the bar. <laughs> you know, I may stop eating meat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I may um, put my sex life in certain parameters. Right. You know, or, or whatever. I'll give up those things that I understand they're not valued to developing that love of God. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's been my path. Mm -hmm. You know, and the faith is a very natural thing that becomes not without challenges, you know, not without struggles, not without difficulties, but not to the extent that that faith is challenged because it's an experience. It's not, I'm born into it or, I, or you know, or it's theoretical. You're actually having the experience that this is where sublimity lies. And would you say that the religious experience came first and that then the framework of bhakti really made sense to understand that experience? Yeah, the, 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 the faith happened first. And, but I guess, it, you know, but perhaps not because unless I, 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 I was approached with some type of reasonability... And, you know, I have an analytical mind. I'm philosophical. I studied philosophy. It's my nature. Unless there was a reasonableness, I wouldn't enter the door. So it, it's a combination of that. So in terms of when, you know, you first became a monk and when you first visited yeah, India? Well, I'll put it this way, is that in the bhakti tradition, it's not about renunciation. It's about dedication. So monk is just a, a, a material proclivity that one has in one sense. It could be a level of spiritual evolution because, you know, all spiritual paths, serious spiritual paths generally are, you know, we, we may work through them, but they're to temper our desires, which, you know, increase the fluctuations of the mind. So, you know, it's one of the, the niyams to, you know, uh, control your senses, et cetera, like that. But um, uh, what was the question again? I got, I got a little... About when you decided to first become a monk yeah. and go to okay. India. Yeah, so, it, it's, it's, so there, I'm saying there's something to be a monk, mm -hmm. but it's not what makes one exalted or advanced in spiritual life. It's your dedication okay. whether you ha and your humility. Whether you have, you know, a family with, you know, six kids. My guru's guru's guru, who was his father, had 12 kids. And he was the, you know, the greatest acharya. It, wow. It's your dedication. Mm -hmm. So it was my proclivity. And uh, it, it, it obviously it gave me some facilities to be unencumbered to dedicate myself, but another person to be a monk would be an absolute disturbance because they would just think more of the objects of desire than less. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not for everybody and it's not even recommended so much. Right. And with, with my experience now, you know, we, initially we thought, oh, everybody can become a monk. But... Uh, most people we would encourage to uh, not become monks, but to have a pr proper partnership, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, again, when did you, when did you st become a monk? I feel like, well, was, okay. there an, yeah, was there a year I, 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 or a time? I, I, well, you know, was I it had slow? a proclivity. Well, 
1970, mm. I um, met the Krishna devotees. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, in, in those days, the nature of the revolutionary type spirit yeah. everywhere lines were drawn mm-hmm. you know and basically if you wanted to be part of this you have to move into ashrams <laughs> really what really um it was like that mm. and yeah, was tell amazing... us a little bit about that kind of historical moment i think well, that'd be I, interesting I think the reason was is because when my guru Prabhupada came i don't think it was a written rule but i th- think when my my guru came people were hippies right. you know and their lifestyles was so antithetical mm-hmm. to yoga, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't, all think, he, I, I, I don't think he saw a, a, a real option of people progressing in spiritual life unless they kind of com- commune together. Yeah. I mean, that's so much change now, and you know, that it, it, the monk is a very rare thing. 95% of the people are married, and that's what the, the tradition is. Right. So, um, but somehow or other, for whatever reason it was, even though my, my attraction was so strong, I stayed in school, got my BA and was a few degrees from a master's. Mm-hmm. And then some experience happened where I felt to commit myself to the ashram. Mm-hmm. Where was this ashram? What's that? Where was this ashram? Well, I was, you know, I, I was going to the temple in New York, which was very vibrant. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was in Brooklyn Heights. Oh, wow. Okay. On Henry Street. And it was extremely vibrant. Mm. Brilliant speakers, some of the best kirtaneers in the world. Wow. The best cooks. I mean, it was just an amazing phenomena. But somehow or other, because my parents at that time were antagonistic. Right. I thought to go someplace else. So my friend from college was in an ashram in Dallas, Texas. So I kind of, I went down there. Okay. And, uh, and then soon after that went to India. So tell us a little bit actually about, you mentioned your family. So what was their kind of perception of what was happening at the time? Did they think you were just kind of falling into some crazy they cult? Thought, yeah, they thought I was falling into some crazy cult. <laughs> and, uh, you know, media wasn't, you know, you couldn't call Not the favorable. next state yeah. at that time without AT&T charging you a fortune. So you couldn't Ah. even actually call on the phone. So communication was limited, you know, you know, the media, the... And so I don't blame them one sense because what happens is when you have a powerful spiritual experience and anything that you experience powerful, initially it's a passion. And the passion means your truth becomes overextended a bit. Mm-hmm. And it takes time to balance it out and be mature. So when you have a young spiritual movement with the oldest people, there's only one says the problem with the Hare Krishna movement in 1970 is that Prabhupada was the only adult. Wow. <laughs> you know, everyone was young. In their 20s. And, and revolutionary. Yeah. So... You know, it takes time before your truths become balanced. So I would say it was a combination of my parents having no frame of reference to understand what I'm doing and me having little ability to explain it. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, it, it, and they, I'm the very respected in my family now by everyone. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm probably the most respected somehow. 
So things change in time. Mm. My parents came to India and, and, and visited me and whatever the case is. But yes, there was, I was, I, I don't, it's a whole other story. I, I was even kidnapped. I did. I would, I would actually love if you talked about that. I was going to ask you next about the kidnapping because wow. it's so crazy. Well, at that time, when people join religious movements, if the parents, and some are cults, right? you know, this is a long, rich tradition. Whether or not some people enter it with a passion and, you know, whatever the case is. And, but um, it's a long, old religious tradition with, mm-hmm. you know, deep, deep roots. And... Uh, but anyway, whatever that happened is, my loving parents, very kind, nice people, they became alarmed, and they had people called deprogrammers, and, and they, they knew the Chinese brainwashing techniques that were used on the Americans that were captured in Korea. So they would physically capture you from the place you are, take you to a place isolated, and then try to blow your mind and break your faith. Oh, my goodness. And that was very common. So, uh, and so that's I, what happened to you. That's crazy. Yeah, and I was captured by the most famous one of them. Is and, it, was this an organization? Was it a company that they paid to do this? Uh, it was a person called Ted Patrick, and he, he did it until it became illegal. <laughs> Yeah, I would hope so. And, well, you know, in those times, you know, it was, you know, there was Jonestown and all these right. horrible things. So I was kidnapped, and uh, they tried to break my faith. Wow. With, and, you know, try, you know, you can enter into people's mind and feed information. Um, they were not successful at all. Obviously. <laughs> Did it, do, do you find that it actually strengthened your faith, this experience? Or? Well, I had a very powerful experience. I, I, um, it's a long story, but after trying, I wouldn't talk to them. Mm, yeah. I wouldn't respond to them. That would take a while to get over. <laughs> I wouldn't interact with them. But they were trying to, you know, destroy my faith in various ways. And very, very tricky psychological ways. But this was my experience. So after about, you know, 18 hours, I deeply, deeply prayed to Krishna Mm -hmm. and the forms of Krishna that were there in Dallas. That's another thing, how God appears. Um... And because I wasn't eating, I wasn't drinking. And it says in the Gita, when the senses are controlled, the super soul is at reach. Mm. In other words, God is in your heart to guide you and talk to you. But perception depends on attention. Yeah. So when your attention is focused externally, you can't hear God in the heart. So my senses were so controlled because I wouldn't talk to them, I wouldn't eat, you know. And... Uh, I deeply prayed, and then I had this experience where I heard the voice of God in my heart saying, if you want to get out, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I just followed this plan. Wow. And uh, it was very subtle, the plan, too. 
but I had convinced them that it, what they did actually worked. That was very smart. <laughs> and I was sent, then I flew, it was in Dallas, I flew back to New York, but they sent a, um, the, the, the hired thug to stay with me and guard me. And, and this was legal at the time. Yeah. This is insane. Yeah, and in case I broke into trance again, <laughs> you know, yeah. and became a Hare Krishna. <laughs> and before I went out, they made me sign a paper with a notary public that I'm in a dangerous cult that teaches one to kill their parents. Oh, my goodness. And if I ever again break into trance, I should be turned over to the conservatorship of my parents. So I, had, I signed that with a notary public. So I went back, and I was looking for ways to escape, but this person was with me. And then they went to, because I didn't have any clothes, because mm-hmm. I had you know, just my robe. So in the house, all I had was, they gave me a pair of baggy dungarees, jeans, before they were in fashion. And, you know, my brother's football jacket, you know, those ones with, like, they look like linoleum sleeves. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Felt. Yeah. And a kind of a Pakistan, a hat my father got from a Pakistani insurance salesman. I didn't have any clothes, so they took me to King's Plaza in Brooklyn. And then this guy, who was from Canada, he went into the bank. And they went into the bank, then I ran outside. To escape, my father chased after me, and somehow or other, I don't know why, but the citizens of New York <laughs> became civic because my father said, "Stop him," you know, like I was a thief, and they started chasing after me. No way. Yeah, so I jumped on a bus because I had stolen one subway token from the house, uh-huh. that, uh, something like that. And I was trying to find it, and they apprehended me. And then it was right in the, you know, the big intersection by King's Plaza. And uh, I don't even know if King's Plaza is still there. Yeah, I'm not even sure where that is. It, it, Flatbush. It was okay. a big, big shopping area, the biggest shopping area in Brooklyn. And okay. A big store. And then uh, the police came. The police were there. So they said, let's get the police. And then I thought, okay, yeah, let's get the police. So the police came. And, you know, my father, he was a very wonderful man, but, you know, somehow or other, out of love for the son and me not being able to explain it, you know, he was concerned. A very nice person. But, you know, he had a limited perception, thought he was doing what's best. So what happened was, and got to love the police in New York. (laughs) And what they said is, they said, "Uh, how old are you, son? Mm. I said, I'm 24 years old. I'm 24 years old. And they looked at my father. They said, he's 24 years old. Let him go. You, you can't keep him. Yeah. My father says, you don't understand. I have a paper signed by him that he's in a, a dangerous cult. And if, you know, he ever, I ever break into, if he ever breaks into trance, he should be turned over to the conservatorship my parents so the police looked at my father and I'm lucky this was in Alabama at the time right? and they said 
if he's 24 years old, what's the use of the paper he signed? <laughs> no, no, if he's crazy, what's the use of the paper he signed? <laughs> what? Brilliant. Yeah. So my father says, you don't understand. I have someone in the bank that can, uh, it was called the American Citizens for Freedom. Oh, my goodness. They said, we have someone in the bank that can testify that he's crazy. So the guy in the bank, his name was Goose. This is, you know, so I said, you know, I said, go get, uh, you know, Goose. And my father said, yes, Goose is in the bank. And the cops looked at each other, as New Yorkers were doing, went like, Goose, you know, it's, you know, Goose. <laughs> you know, you know, it sounded so. But my father insisted. They said, "Okay, then you'll we'll have to you'll have to register a complaint with the police, and then you, you know the psychiatrist will have to investigate him and commit him." So I went to the police station, and my father registered the complaint, and they handcuffed me behind the back. And they took me in the police car. And what were you saying at the time? What were you saying to your father? Were you talking to him? Were you silent? Were you, were you trying to convince him that you weren't crazy? It, it, you know, I was so young and he was so, you know, whatever at the time. I don't know what was said at that time. I don't remember it. I mean, but oh, anyway, so then I went into the Kings County, whatever it is, psychiatry ward or something. Mm-hmm. So I was waiting in the lobby, and they interviewed my parents. And uh, they interviewed my parents. And then I was waiting in the lobby. And there were all kinds of really intensely crazy people. I remember (laughs) one guy violently was strapped down, screaming as such violently. And there was another lady talking to the wall like it was her jilted boyfriend. And then the psychiatrist called me in. And uh, what happened is he saw me in the lobby, you know, because I, I, I do a certain meditation and I count on beads. Mm-hmm. You know, mala, like right. rosary. Yeah. And, it's, and I do about two hours a day minimum. I mean, that's my vow. So I was chanting... But there's a way of counting on your fingers. So the psychiatrist thought that I was talking to myself. Ah. Because he looked and he saw me walking, chanting. So he asked me if I was hallucinating. And I looked at him, and what I did is I quoted practically word for word from a commentary I had read the previous day from my Guru Maharaj, Srila Prabhupada. His, you know, he wrote a... He, wrote English commentaries on about 60 Sanskrit texts. So I, 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 quote, I, I quoted to the psychiatrist, Dr. Cohn. I said, I'm not hallucinating, but it can't be said I'm seeing the same thing as you. I said, just as if someone is theistic, he sees everything as the energy of God and be meant to use in God's service. If someone is not theistic, you see the energy of God is separate of, from God and only to be used selfishly. Mm-hmm. So I said, although, therefore, although I'm not hallucinating, it can't be said that I am seeing the same thing as you. Mm-hmm. 
And the psychiatrist is like he's mouth drop. And he said to me, that's very intelligent. He said, I think your parents are crazy. And then he, he released me. But to you know to make a story, after, and then I went to India after that, and you know my parents are very very nice people. I mean, they had to have had a lot of love for you to go to those kinds of lengths, you know. Yeah, I know they're they're very good. I you know no divorce together, solid people, you know responsible people. I, I love my parents, and you know to, to but you know I stuck to my guns of what. I valued, you know, yeah. tr- truth is higher than anything, and I felt that was the highest truth. But I would say, you know, what happened is, uh, you know, somehow they visited me in India, and, them- and they themselves had a enlightening, you know, wonderful experience, and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> in fact, today, I will go from the Bhakti Center at New Jersey to sp- before I go to India to spend three or four days with my 94-year-old mother. Oh, that's wonderful. Who's outrageously proud of me now. As she should be, yeah. <laughs> so how long did it take to make that shift then? How, how many, how many uh, years was uh, it before well, they softened? 74, I went in, and I think they visited me in India in 81. And then after they came from India, you know, uh, their whole perception and the whole thing changed. And as I matured, and as they began to meet all the incredible, you know, you've been to the Bhakti Center, all the incredible, bright, young people who live such a high quality of moral life, yeah. but in such a non-judgmental and loving way, they just became completely impressed with the kind of people that are coming to, you know, spiritual life in the bhakti tradition with, you know, good families and beautiful children and everything that they actually idealize, they see. And when that happens, you know, I'm in the robes, but if you look at 100, 200, 100 Krishnas, there'll be one in a robe. Yeah. You know, I'm a monk. I live in the monastery, but it's the people in the world. And when you see them, because they have these moral qualities of, you know, healthy parameters for sex life, no intoxication, you know, no meat eating, you know, in our tradition, the pillars of spirituality are mercy, cleanliness, austerity, and truthfulness. Gambling destroys truthfulness. Illicit sex destroys cleanliness. Meat-eating destroys mercy. And uh, intoxication destroys austerity. Mm. So in our particular tradition, you know, these kind of foundational principles, when you see them embraced by young people, now they're not young. Now they're 30, 40, I'm 65. It's impressive. Mm -hmm. So... My teacher would say, you know, a man may be a drunk, but he doesn't want his children to be. Mm. So my parents, seeing that the qualities they wanted, I I developed. And a productive life in a little bit different way than they wanted, you know, I have. 
And now, do you do you find that your family comes to you for uh, advice? Do they ever come to you for spiritual counseling uh, of some sort? Yeah, they do. That's beautiful. My my my. I have two brothers, one younger, one older. Uh, two of my nieces have been to India to stay with me. You know, they're very favorable, very favorable. Wow. So you've really had a very dramatic impact on your family. Uh, I have actually. That's awesome. I have. That's pretty great. And with respect for them. I respect, you know, that they live responsible lives. Mm-hmm. Stayed together, took care of the family, did their dharma, their duties, didn't act irresponsibly. So I have to have some respect. Of course, yeah. But in the, mean, in the meantime, you've, you've managed to open up their, their perception to something quite vast. Uh, yeah, the, the, the appreciation is pretty profound. Yeah. That's great. So, unless you want to sit, tell us anything more about your story... I don't like to talk about myself, but okay. you, you asked me, so I... <laughs> well, we're going to talk a lot about you, but okay. I do want to talk a little bit now about... Um, I have this book here, Joppa Meditations. It's yeah. one of the books that you've written. Yeah. And I wanted you to just maybe talk a little bit about Mantra Joppa, what it is. You actually have talked a little bit about this already, but maybe going a little bit... Um, deeper again into why you wrote this book. There was something in the introduction that I'm going to hope I can just kind of find really quickly here that you mentioned. Uh, it was actually another writer who who um, mentioned it in this way, but I really liked the way you put it. Was that... Um, oh, where is it? The Science of Changing Habits. I really like that. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about... Um, Mantra Japa, uh, the science of changing habits, and just you know the general philosophy behind. Well, actually, what that book was is, um, you know, I'm a monk, mm-hmm. but the modern life, and monks are supposed to be traveling. Yeah. Uh, or you can stay in one place, but I'm a traveling monk, so the modern life actually is not so conducive to that because previously a monk would walk from one place to another Mm -hmm. so it was actually a healthy thing physically and mentally you know today it's traveling in cars traveling in planes when you change the environment it takes 72 hours to physiologically adjust to the different water the different air um, when you go when you go faster than a bullock cart, it blows out the the fire of digestion. <laughs> you know, it increases the mode of passion. So while previously a traveling monk, it would be the opposite. Your digestion would increase, your health would increase. You wouldn't walk far enough to go to a different environment. It was the mode of goodness. So it's a sacrifice actually for sharing teachings. So the tradition was, even when people would walk around, is that there's one month, Kartik, the month of Radha, where you would stay in one place and do Niyama Seva. Niyama Seva is you would regulate your life and you would increase your spiritual life. And you do the same thing every day. You know, very, very powerful. In a holy place, which is supposed to increase the effect. So for the last, I don't, can't even remember how many years... No matter what I was doing, of course, I lived in Vrindavan, but especially in the last 20 years, I lived in this holy place. 
In the last 20 years, six months of the year, I've been traveling to, you know, America. And now America is coming to where I am. So it's not like I just stay in my room and chant till 12 o'clock. People are coming constantly. And I'm feeling the telegraphic message from the divine that mm -hmm. you know, I should do this and help people and help them give this spiritual experience as they're visiting. So especially the last 20 years, I take one month off on this holy thing and I go to a sacred mountain called Govardhan related to Krishna's pastimes. And I you know, do six to eight hours of meditation a day. So when I would do that, and I was already in the habit of journaling because I'm a teacher and I had people in America, you know, so I wanted to give them something and then the internet came, so I would write journals. So what I would do is when I would meditate, when you meditate like that for long periods, you know, you get realizations on how you can become absorbed. You see, you can become absorbed in one of two ways from your understanding, a realization, wow, I should do this, or from your heart, I'm attached to this. So I found different ways in which I would activate the intelligence to get the mind fixed or invoke sentiments in the heart that would increase my natural flow of attraction. And it's very, very creative in the bhakti tradition. So what happened is, you know, I'd be there in the morning waking up very early, like two o'clock and beginning my meditation. And when realizations would come, I would jot down a note and then every day I would write them. So then what I said, let me share this with others. So I put it, you know, in a book. Or someone said you should share this to others. Then I saw there were other friends like me, men, women, young, old, you know, Western, European, Indian, whatever, who were also congregated in this place. And I thought, why not interview them? So then I put it in a book, and it's become, at least in our tradition, very, very popular. Wherever I go, people thank me for helping in their meditations. So that's what the book is, and I basically before explained what the techniques are right. of, of the meditation. Beautiful. I want to ask you about uh, the personality of Godhead, and we actually had talked about this just before we started recording. Yeah. Um, and I, I just want to get you, and you had said you, you disagree with, it, with another kind of position that, that some people have, which is the idea of Godhead, <clears throat> considering Godhead in a more kind of allegorical or, or symbolic way. So, so in this viewpoint, the, the personalities, God, personalities of God are really signposts for certain qualities that we, that are, you know, I don't know, you could say they're cosmic, you could say they're metaphysical, yeah. but ultimately they're, yeah. they're more vi vibratory yeah. or, or, or at the level of essence and not at the level of personality. Right. So I'm wondering, you know, obviously the Vaishnavite tradition, uh, the personality of Godhead is, is, yeah. is central. So I'd love for you to talk about why, you know, philosophically, what is the difference and why the personality of Godhead versus this other path? Well, first of all, this tradition that I'm in believes there's one absolute reality. Mm -hmm. Advayam Gyan, that's non-dual consciousness, that doesn't have the defect of impersonality. <laughs> I see. Mm. You know, so there's one God. 
it also believes there are devatas or demigods or powerful personalities and universal government, etc. But it believes there's one God, not there's many gods. That's one thing. The second thing is this conception called Advaita Vedant, uh, uh, undifferentiated oneness, that all distinction, all energy is an illusion, mm. um, is very, very much a minority view in Indian thought. Basically, there's, you know, there's six darshans or philosophies in Indian thought. There's Nyaya, there's Sankhya, there's Yoga, there's Mamamsa, there's uh, Visheshika, and there's Vedanta. Mm. And basically what it is, there's the Vedas. The Vedas mean knowledge of the Indian spiritual text. Teachers have gone through them and saw that there are basically six different approaches to spiritual conception and practice. Now, of those six, Advaita Vedanta is one view of one school of thought, Vedanta. Mm -hmm. The non-dual version of Vedanta. Non-dual. I mean, real non-dual. Non-dual means there is not two. Right. Any distinction is an illusion. That particular view is very much a minority view that has become popularized as representing the tradition of India Mm. because the first person who really propagated Indian spirituality in America who was an Advaita Vedantist. Mm. So that's just from the historical viewpoint. It's a minority view. That's so interesting. So you're essentially what you're saying is that the, the kind of, um, colloquial understanding of Eastern philosophy is slightly distorted from the actual real on-the-ground religious practices in India at the moment, which is that... Well, I mean, there there is... Oneness becomes very popular for many reasons. Yeah. It's non-threatening. Yeah. That there's nothing superior to you. (laughs) (laughs) Or even that you are that. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it, it's less challenging to the ego than there's actually you're part of something that's much greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. So in, in, even just in terms of material conditioning, it's kind of like attractive in one way. So it, it has its thing in India. But, um, but it's a minority well, view. It is. Uh, for example, the Yoga Sutras. You know, it says Vishesha Purush. Right? There's a Purusha soul and there's a Vishesha Purush. And there's Ishra, you know, and Ishra is, represents God. I mean, you, you know, you, you may say what you want, but the, 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 the colloquial, the use of that term at the time that the Yoga Sutra is, is basically a divine absolute reality that has the classic characteristics of what we'll call God. And it, it's exactly parallel to the descriptions of the Bhagavad Gita, Advaita Vedanta means that all individuality is illusion, that when you become perfect, you'll realize basically that you don't exist. And if you look at Gita, the Gita says, Natvevaham jatu nasam, natvam neme janadipa, nasarvanabhavishyama, sarvavyama, 
Never was a time where I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. It affirms the individuality of the soul. And so does yoga. Mm -hmm. In perfection, you exist, and so does God. So from yoga, which is one viewpoint, from Vedanta, except for Veda Vedanta, and the other schools, Nyaya, Sankhya, (laughs) they all affirm the individuality of the soul. Mm. So... um, and, to, and uh, it seems to be a reasonable conception. I mean, the classical argument will be if our present state is illusion, then what is the basis of illusion? Now, you have two choices. One, it's the jiva, the living entity, is an illusion. But according to uh, Advaita Vedanta, the living entity itself is an illusion. Mm-hmm. So illusion can't be the basis of illusion. So then you have to say what? Brahman. Illusion comes from Brahman. Now you have two problems with that. One, it's not Brahman. Brahman means God of the greatest because then he's, he's covered by illusion. And you have duality. Yeah. You have Brahman and illusion. Yeah. So I don't really see how that radical view of non-dualism actually has a sound philosophical basis. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. Because it, it's, the, it's the dualism of non-dualism and dualism, essentially, is what you're saying. Because Brahman is, is the non-dual principle, but then there's yeah. Maya, which is dualism. So ultimately, yeah. with the non-dualism of Advaita Vedanta, from my understanding, collapses ultimately into another dualism. It does. Yeah. And now we'll get to terms of personality. Mm-hmm. So once you get that there are qualities and there, there are distinctions in the universe, now you get to the question of personality. There is, you probably know the name better than me, but there's one person that's probably the father of Christian apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean I'm sorry. Right. It means very scholarly people mm-hmm. who are interested in Defending a theistic conception. Mm. I think his name is Alvin Plantinger. Mm. I'm actually not familiar. He's a you know Christian. He's uh, he went, it was Notre Dame now something. And someone asked him, "Is you know is God a person?" He said he's not less than a person. <laughs> I mean, how can we deny if we believe in God? How can we deny the qualities of love and reciprocation? that we have in ourselves. So, and love means an exchange. So how can it be non-dualistic? So in that sense, then, you know, and therefore my teacher says God doesn't have the defect of impersonality. And you can't deny form. Because in the bhakti tradition, yes, God is energy that's pervading everything, but he also has a, a form for manifesting love. And to deny that is limiting God. And would you say that that's the difference between the nirgun and the sagun forms? Yeah. forms. Yeah. It's interesting that you're saying this. I'm really glad you're saying this because I, I, I think I encountered for the first time what you're saying when I read The Journey Home by Radhanath Swami. Yeah. And in it, in it, and it was the first time I ever considered it this way, and I think it's such a an interesting teaching that um, that if God is limitless, then how can we place the limitation that God can't manifest in form? 
and that was really what kind of kind of opened up my mind about it was that if we're going to say that there is this kind of infinite principle this absolute principle that we're using the word god for then there can be no there can be no predicates placed on what can and cannot be manifested or expressed yeah, exactly. through that principle so that then if that principle is intimate infinite then one of those manifestations has to be some kind of personality right and that personality would not be limited right <laughs> yeah <laughs> will not be limited yeah and uh right well, if you just have no form right it's limiting but if you have form it could also contain energy mm-hmm. that pervades everything yeah so that's the basic conception and then the conception of the deities just as i mentioned you know material elements can be transformed into fire not all elements god creates it that way and then there's certain sounds that can be transformed there's certain forms that can be transformed and when you inst- when you have these deities there's something called pran pratishta to establish life or invoke divinity there's different ceremonies it's not idol worship Mm-hmm. you know there it's it's a specific thing and how it's done and the example would be like a mailbox you know you have one box it's painted red white and blue put it out on the street and it doesn't work you have another box if it's authorized by the government it has mystic power you can write a little code it can go to any village in africa mm-hmm. so it, it, it's 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 that sense that's interesting um so one thing uh about uh the Vaishnavite tradition is that it, it, it focuses on, on the, the godhead of Krishna. So I was wondering if there was a, a, maybe a story just kind of related to what yeah. we're talking about. If there's a story that you could maybe tell about Krishna where Krishna reveals himself to be infinite. So you know, Krishna is the name for God within the Vaishnavite tradition, but he contains within himself the infinite. Correct? Well, there's one God. You just, you, you know, it's, it's not that there's Vishnu and there's yeah. Krishna. And Shiva, there's yeah. one God. Mm-hmm. It's just manifest in different ways. Okay. Just like ourselves. Mm-hmm. I could go to an office and be a hard, high court judge. You know, my intimate side is not manifest. I can come home and be a friend and so many things. It's the same person, but it'll be seen in different ways according to one's perspective and one's relationship. You'll be seen in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I gave actually a class, because I'm in the yoga studio, Yoga Maya, I'm the spiritual mentor I, there since the beginning. I think that's where Jimmy may have first heard me. And, uh, you know, I give classes there regularly. So, I, you know, I, ha- I have to come up with different topics mm-hmm. and prepare lectures, you know, for the outs, you know, to... So, so many people were coming and understanding bhakti, and I, you know, I spoke on karma and, and aesthetics and so many things that I finally thought, yeah, they're ready for this one. I wrote a, uh, I gave a seminar called "Can God Be Blue: A Study of Krishna." <laughs> That's a great title. It is. I think I'm going to write a book about that. But what I did is I first discussed the arguments for God's existence. In terms of reasonability, I'm not going to go into it here. It's probably beyond the scope of this. But I think if you lay out all the rationale and arguments, I think it weighs far more heavily on the side of the possibility of God's existence. 
Then, as I discussed with you, the nature of personality. Then I discussed the reasonability of Krishna being God. So the conception with Krishna is, is that the fullest manifestation of being is love. So Krishna, in one of the main sacred texts, which I taught here, and Jimmy, would, when he had some time, he would come to the class. We, 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 I appreciated that. It's, um, first thing is Akila Rasamrita Murti, the full embodiment of love. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means when you take a position of majesty, it limits the expression of yourself. Mm-hmm. Your intimate side can't come out. So I coined the term that Krishna means God, G-O-D, with his guard, G-U-A, down. You know, it's God at home where you can fully manifest yourself. So the interesting thing is to fully manifest yourself, you have to um, not manifest a position because that will limit every, that, that will limit the, the expression of your love. Yeah. So the, the, that's the concept of Krishna. So the highest manifestation of God, not a different God, mm-hmm. is when he's the God of love. Yeah. Where you can be a lover, where you can be a friend, where you can be the parent of God. So, so ultimately, all yoga is bhakti yoga. Would no, you say that? No, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I would say there are diff- there's different yogas. Mm-hmm. Yoga means... A discipline to trans- transcend the ego. Mm-hmm. So you have karma yoga. You you have you know there's all these impulses. There's all these you know you can't really stop them. Mm-hmm. But there's born of the false ego nonetheless. They're born of your karma. I am this. I am an artist. I am a dancer. You know I'm a profet- You know I'm a scholar. I'm an intellectual. I'm you know uh, you know whatever your your proclivities are. Karma yoga means you transcend it by dharma responsibility and charity, giving up the fruits of your sacrifice. Jnana yoga means you transcend that ego by self-discipline and mindfulness and looking at it. And bhakti means you transcend the false ego by developing love, which is antithetical to the false ego, love of God, which is inclusive of true sacrifice and compassion to everyone. Okay, now my question is, do all roads lead to bhakti? And, and what I mean by that is that, uh, and I, you, see, you sort of hear that a lot, you hear, you know, all roads uh, lead to love. And, and so my question is, you know, is the top of the mountain uh, ultimately an experience of love? Does, you know, if I'm a yana yogi, and I, and I do feel more attuned to that just because I'm more attuned to the intellectual based on my history. But I also feel that there's something fundamental about the experience of love. So at the top of the mountain, you know, where we're all going, is that an experience of love? Right, but then you have to come to the path of bhakti. Bahunam janmanam ante jnanavam prapadyate vasudeva samamiti samahatma sadulaba bahunam janmanam after many, many years of Vigyani, Vasudeva, you'll realize that God is everything. Some Mahatma, such a Mahatma, a great soul, is rare. Or, you know, so you'll come to the conclusion in Bhagavad Gita, at the end of the sixth chapter, where all yoga processes are described, it describes yoginam api sarvesham madgatena taratmanam 
Shradhavam bhajate yomam samayuktama. Of all yogis, one who worships me with faith and devotion is the highest of all. Yeah, so that hopefully that's the destination. But there's also a kind of merging that could be kind of a destination without love. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, I do feel bhakti is the highest destination and that really ultimately karma and gyan is meant to bring us to bhakti, to love. Mm. What can be a higher perfection than selfless, inclusive love of everything? What, you know, I ask people, you know, meditate on a, pe- a person, think of a person that you respect, and what are their qualities? And everybody, you know, I say, what are their qualities? Uh, gratitude, compassion, selflessness. Mm. You know, who says self-control? You, you know, it, it, it's inherently so reasonable that the highest conception is to develop a heart. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I can't, I can't imagine, imagine anything higher than that. Yeah. I can't. So, uh, you know, I have a few more questions. And as we thought was going to happen, I think we'll have to extend this into another, uh, okay. another session after you get back to India. Maybe we can talk on Skype. Yeah, definitely. But I definitely want to talk. I want to ask just a couple more questions. Okay. One of them is, uh, what is the role? We talked about this for a second before we started recording. But what is the role, would you say, of monasticism? In modern society. So, so you are obviously a monk. You've chosen this path. What would you say the role is of monasticism in modern very life? Very limited, not limited in itself. It's a, it should be a very, very exclusive social um, position for people who really have that proclivity, you know, you know, when I when I when I took the monastic order, and I, I you know my guru had left, so I took it from the senior god brother. You know, one thing he he t- told when he took um, from my guru the monk's order. You know, my guru said you should be happy in renunciation. <laughs> So it should not be for people who have to, are frustrated or, you know, whatever the case is. Or renunciation is not just because you fail in the world mm. or something like the that. The world-weary kind of decision yeah, to go, yeah. It should be if for people who have a proclivity. You could say an evolution in certain ways because even if you go through marriage, you know, the, really the goal of marriage is, is that your sex life, your desires... You see, what happens is, when you have a desire, if you indulge in the desire, it'll inflame more. If you artificially renounce it, you'll think of it more. So spiritual life means you regulate it. That's called dharma. And when it's regulated, what'll happen is, is it'll be satisfied in a way that you don't think about it, right? But at the same time, you'll be practicing renunciation because you'll be limiting it. So you'll be able to progress in a spiritual way. Of course, there may be some tantric sex paths or something like that, you know, which I don't think are you know, part of really spiritual tradition. I think it's a... But anyway, whatever the case is, it's 
so, you know, there may be people who've been through it already. Mm-hmm. You know, they may have been through it in past lives. And, uh, and we'll, you know, at least in my tradition, if you really want to make, you can be a monk in our tradition and get married. But there is a type of monk that can be committed. And what we've learned is that you have to make the, the, the qualification very, very rigid. Because the, otherwise, most people fail, and they'll ruin the reputation of the order, right. and th- there'll be some disturbance. And even my teacher said, it was really interesting, you know, because he came from a particular tradition and he went on his own. Not he went on his own, but it, it broke up, you know. So he had God brothers, and he said his God brothers criticized him for various things, you know, like when he came to the West, you know, he had a woman's ashram too, as well as men, because it's a different culture. You know, women became priests, you, you know, so he did a few revolutionary things because he was in a different culture. So he said, my godbrothers criticized me for many things. He said, but one thing they were right is, is I gave too many young men sannyas, and that's the order. But then he said, he quoted a Bengali saying, but what could I do when the castor oil tree, that's a very small tree, mm-hmm. when the, when, when, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what is it, when, when they're, uh, you know, you know, something with in the forest of castor oil trees, one may, you know, you know, one may look bigger. I forgot mm-hmm. the thing, but he gave a Bengali saying, which means well, I had no choice, <laughs> you know, because he was starting a revolutionary spiritual movement. Mm-hmm. You needed spiritual leaders. You know, he empowered people, but most of them failed. Right. And I think in compassion, it's not a complete failure. You know, he he encouraged them again. Just get married, and, and you know, and you and you can continue in the same way. Mm. So it's a limited thing, but it's also glorious. Yeah, it's also glorious. I mean, here in the Bhakti Center, um, you know, we had, especially in the last two years, quite a few of our monks got married with full blessings. And they make great husbands, you know, they're already kind of so spiritual and, and disciplined and, and, and mature and, uh, and uh, they'll, they'll be great parents and they'll mm-hmm. produce, a, you know, very powerful spiritual children. Mm-hmm. And they'll continue in partnership with, you know, their, their lives and their dedication. But there are a few monks, and it's a beautiful thing to see that someone is just unencumbered, completely dedicated, peaceful in simplicity. That's a beautiful thing. So what would your uh, suggestion be to perhaps some listeners who are listening to you and it's really resonating and and maybe this path of dedication that you've chosen is something that that they feel in their heart might, you know... uh, be something that they'd be interested in pursuing, what would you suggest? What would you be your words of advice well, for I that mean, person? We created the Bhakti Center, and it's a very beautiful, beautiful center. It is. And the nature of it, it's very fluid. You know, there's not a 
you know, obviously it's of the bhakti tradition and people run who is dedicated, mm-hmm. but it's not to impose that on people that come. Yeah. You know, you should be us. Mm-hmm. You should be dedicated. But it's offering so much education. And we have about three or four really, you know, good, different ways of presenting the Gita and me- meditation, various seminars. There's, you know, Ayurvedic cooking. There's festivals, so many things. So, you know, people have to, you know... Ex- First thing is they have to want truth. I want to be guided by some principle that's higher than just my own desires, which may include my own desires, because the truth will say, you have these desires, they, they have to be fulfilled, etc. And when you want that, and, you know, you find your path. So, I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I have an ashram now in Colombia. It's a whole, from, yeah. It's South a, America? Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm going to organize retreats from New York. When are you there? I went twice this summer for two weeks. Wow, I haven't even heard of this. Well, it just, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's like a heavenly planet. I mean, there's, you never need an air conditioner, you never need a fan, you never need a heater all year round. It's just beautiful. And uh, Is there a website for this? Uh, there is. If you send me, I'll send you the pictures and websites. And I'm going to organize bhakti retreats from New York, but very, not widely advertised. You know, I, I kind of want a core group that are people are, you know, in the. But um, what I'm mentioning there, there, there's somehow or other where that ashram is, and is it's in a very exclusive area. And in those kind of countries, the people that are the haves, they tend to be very family oriented. And kind of pious. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, sometimes that coming into the ashram, they would be a very wonderful young person, and they're Catholic. Mm. But really Catholic. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They really have the principles of Christ and things like that. I don't, I, you know, encourage them, you know? Mm-hmm. If they have their path, they have their love, fine. You know? So I think the bhakti centers like that, you know? If this can enhance your spirituality, of course, I have faith in my tradition in in how it's communicating and presenting these truths in a contemporary setting, and it may touch some people's hearts. I describe teachers and traditions like glasses. There's the object, there's your eyes, and there's something that fits you. Yeah. You know, so if, if it fits you... There's a prescription for everybody. Not, you take advantage of kirtan. I mean, especially on Thursday nights, they have beautiful kirtan, regular pro. Anyway, thank you for letting me give the plug. <laughs> yeah, of course. So if people want to hear more about the Bhakti Center, it's bhakticenter.org. Is that correct? Yeah, the bhakticenter.org. The Bhakti yeah, so many wonderful activities. So it's B-H-A-K-T-I. B-H-A-K-T-I. Center. Center. Or, is it org or com? Org, but if, you know, Google the Bhakti Center, the Bhakti that will Center be it. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And then you've written two books. I've mentioned one. One is uh, Japa Meditations, Contemplations on Entering. Yeah, the okay. Room. I say my, you can get on my, my website, wavesofdevotion.com. Wavesofdevotion.com. Yeah, three books. Waves of Devotion is a commentary by me on a, 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 the most classic bhakti text called the Bhakti Rastamrita Sindhu. Mm-hmm. 
and then I wrote Japa Meditations, and, you know, and then Greetings from Brindavan. It's just a journal, people like it, of uh, my realizations and the experience and the realizations of people I met living most of my life in India in the most holy place of Krishna Bhakti, which is Vrindavan. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the resources that I, that I, resources that I've created for Five Tattvas is um, an annotated bibliography. I'm sure you know what, uh, you're familiar with that. It's called the uh, the Embodied Philosophers Library, and it's an open document. And I'm continuing to add books and resource texts for to it for those who are you know interested in exploring yoga philosophy on a variety of levels. So I'm asking everyone who I interview if they have two or maybe three books or even just one book that, you know, they would recommend, you know, so books that you have read that you have found profoundly helpful. Do you have any you want to suggest? Well, you mentioned The Journey Home by Radhanath Swami. And then uh, my teacher has the most widely distributed Gita commentary in the world called uh, Bhagavad Gita As It Is by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And he has 60 other books, but that's one basic book that I studied from. Excellent. Wow. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. There are so many other things I wanted to talk to you about, like karma and Leela, but those are such big topics. You know, I'll, I'll be a regular guest. You will be a regular guest for sure. Well, thank you so much, Maharaj. And it's been such thank a you. pleasure. And I'll, I'll speak to you soon. And, and uh, safe travels to India. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Danyadara Swami. Again, you can find out more about what Danyadara Swami is up to at wavesofdevotion.com. Also, check out thebhakticenter.org, as we had mentioned in the interview, for all of the really incredible programs that he referred to that are happening at the center.